I'm Kimberly C. Paul. Today we talk with Jen Johnson. She's a writer, photographer, and a mindfulness teacher that is changing the way we deal with grief. How do we become the architect of our own destiny? Throughout two decades of working with the dying, I think I've discovered the secrets to dying well in America. We must learn to build the pathways to our last chapter, to create the blueprints that reflects our individual lives and values. Knowledge is power, and if we desire a death that reflects our life, we must become the designer. I'm glad, Jen, that you joined us um, to talk a little bit about meditation today. There's so many individuals that don't know what mindfulness or meditation really is, or even the benefits. So can you really start talking to us a little bit about what is mindfulness and meditation? And those, to me, 10 years ago were very, very big words. So tell me, what do they mean? Yeah, it's it's becoming more common, which is a good thing, I think. Um, but mindfulness is really just awareness of the present moment without clinging to it, without turning away and trying to escape it, and without wanting it to be other than it is. So it's this practice of holding our experience with awareness, with heartfulness, a sense of compassion and kindness toward ourselves, and observing it from the perspective of our internal objective witness consciousness, which is, it allows us to be less reactive and more responsive in our lives. Well, even, you know, that definition, it, it seems overwhelming. If you could if you could, what, what is mindfulness? I mean, people say when they're sitting down there and I I think of Buddha, you know, just humming and having his little fingers out and, and, but the practice is catching your thoughts from moving away from a quiet space and bringing them back. Is that to some degree? Yes. Um, it's a little, it's a little more complex than that. Let's talk about the nature of the mind because mindfulness is really bringing awareness to our habitual, mindfulness is really bringing awareness to our habitual ways of thinking and seeing the world and and then choosing something different if those habitual patterns create suffering for us. So we experience the world through sensations, feelings, and thoughts. And anytime we have an experience that hits our sense doors, the mind immediately starts classifying it as pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And if it classifies it as pleasant, think about your favorite food, maybe your favorite cookie. Usually the first thought is, oh, my God, this is so good. And almost always the second thought is, I want more. And we then become so entangled in that clinging that we leave present moment awareness. And sometimes we eat the whole bag of whatever we're eating before we even know that it's gone. We haven't even been present in the moment to to savor it. I've done that. Right. Especially with <laughs> chips. <laughs> True. And and similarly, if there's an unpleasant, if the mind judges an experience as unpleasant, um, our first thought is often, oh, no, not this. And then we become entangled in trying to escape it or turn away from it. And so people's minds often view a quote unquote negative emotion as something unpleasant. So if we take an experience of grief Often our first response when that sadness or grief arises is, oh, no, not this. And then we become really busy in trying to turn away from it. And we do all sorts of creative things to try to escape it, like binge watching TV, eating or drinking too much, abusing alcohol or drugs, um, retail therapy, getting involved in chaotic relationships, staying chronically busy. 
And so mindfulness is really this practice of learning to stay, just learning to be present with whatever is arising in our experience in a way that allows us to maintain a sense of internal peace and equanimity while we're being present with that emotional experience or, or sensation or thought, whatever it may be. Hmm. You said something that I sort of related to about numbing out the world. And, you know, we're in a world that really forces us to to numb out, to numb out and not be in the present moment, with, whether it's, uh, you know, social media or, you know, like you said, drinking. Um, we Do you feel people numb out when it comes to grief? Oh, absolutely. I think our, you know, we aren't taught from a, nobody in our family or in our culture teaches us how to manage grief. It's this thing that we kind of fumble our way through. And that's one of the things I love about teaching mindfulness practice and doing mindfulness-based counseling and therapy with people. It's, it really teaches a structured, skillful way of how do we turn toward these emotions and manage them skillfully in a way that we don't become entangled with them and overwhelmed by them and over-identified with them. So, you know, we, we have two patterns. We either become overly identified and feel like that's all I am is this grief, and we can't see beyond that to see that we're much more than our grief, or we turn try turning away from it and, and try to escape it, and all these things that we do to try to run away from it and numb out create more suffering. Hmm. Yeah. So, you know, the past year I wrote a book and the one thing that I, that I've noticed is that writing is a practice and it's not something that you, something that I had to sit down from this to this time to actually do. And the more I did it, the better I felt that I could get into the groove. Mindfulness is a practice too. So talk, talk to me a little bit about how are, what is the benefits of implementing mindfulness into a daily practice or is daily too much? Oh, absolutely. Daily is not too much. I've practiced daily for a long, long time. And um, I tell my clients and students, you might not want to be my client or student if I wasn't practicing every day. It's, you know, it keeps me grounded and um, able to be the person that I want to be in the world. So some of the benefits of mindfulness, um, there's, there have been a lot of studies in the last 30 years on this practice. And what we're seeing is that, in general, people who practice regularly have an increased sense of peace, happiness, and well-being. And we're also seeing a decreased um, number of symptoms of anxiety, depression, stress, um, and grief and pain. Um, so it, you know, this practice helps us to increase our awareness of these habitual patterns of thinking that create suffering and learn how to change our perspective and choose where to rest our attention in order to cultivate more positive and wholesome emotional and mental states. And it's interesting you talk about the writing, you know, writing and photography. I teach mindful writing and mindful photography practices. And I use that a lot in my work with people with grief. And there's this amazing thing that can happen with creative practices when we can't access the language for what we're feeling through talking about it. And writing helps us sometimes access that on a deeper level. And we're doing it in a structured and contained way that helps us not feel so overwhelmed by it. And the more we write about it, the more you know, the more comfortable we become with whatever's coming out. And, and also that writing helps to, to 
kind of bring a sense of order to what feels like internal chaos. And it can really be a beautiful way of helping us to more deeply understand our our experience of grief. Yeah, you know, I never realized that I was still grieving over some of the stories that I was writing until after I wrote it. And and that that's I was unaware. Yes. And so it was really interesting that, you know, some people asked me about, you know, what the book is about. And I mean, of course it's about individuals that happened in my life that died, but I never realized that I was grieving for that until after the whole book was done, but it was a process through that daily writing and, and sometimes walking away and just crying about it for a minute or two. And, um, it was, it was really a, an eye opener. Yeah. It, I think writing works that way. You know, we might not have the language or even a way to conceptualize what we're feeling, but when we start putting it into a written story, whether it's or putting it into a written story or making images about it with the photographs that tell the story. It's like this story gives shape to our feelings and deepens our understanding and awareness of that in a way that um, helps us to heal and move forward. I wanted to go back to, you know, a meditation practice. So can you help us understand what that means? I mean, can you help us or explain your practice to us? Sure. And I think a practice is a very personal thing. So my what my practice looks like may not be what your practice looks like. And it's a, a personal practice is something that we can shape in a way that works and fits with our own lives and schedules and needs and desires. Um, so we have what we call formal practice, which is, you know, sitting meditation, walking meditation, eating meditation, And then we have an informal practice, and I think both are equally important, but the informal practice is how do we take what we're learning, how do we take these insights that we're gaining in the formal practice and the principles of mindfulness and really apply them in our everyday lives so that we're, you know, we're more mindful in conversation, we're more mindful in how we approach moving through our days, we're more mindful in how we approach our relationships with other people. And I think the the practice, the formal practice really gives us the grounding and footing we need to take that into our everyday lives. But in my opinion, moving it into our everyday lives is where the real magic happens in this practice. Hmm. Well, okay. So mindfulness helps with a lot of things that a lot of people deal with on a daily basis. It It's positive. Uh, it makes us pause. Why isn't everyone doing it? I think some people are put off by the practice. They make a lot of assumptions. You know, it has its roots in Buddhism and and for some practices, Hinduism. And people are put off by that because they assume, oh, it's not consistent with my religious beliefs. Or, um, and and the truth is, it can be practiced as a secular practice. I think of Buddhism as a philosophy rather than a religion. And it's really compatible with any religious belief or practice. I think other people... Um, have a lot of misconceptions about the practice. So some people say, well, I tried and I couldn't do it right. And that's always amusing to me. I'm like, what does it mean to do meditation right? Because that's the antithesis about what mindfulness is. Um, And so often I hear, well, I tried practicing and my mind wandered and so I couldn't do it. Well, we're not trying to stop the mind from wandering. We're trying to be aware of when the mind wanders and bring it back to the present moment. And so it's, I think it's really important to work with a skilled teacher because some of those misconceptions can get cleared up as you're, you know, learning the practice and moving through and encountering some of these hindrances and barriers that we all encounter in a new practice. 
and receive guidance to move through them and keep practicing. Well, and there's also so many things out there, you know, someone that you may know, um, Oprah's do- doing this whole meditation thing, like every quarter with uh, Deepak Chopra. And there, she's got a lot of people interested in meditation. I mean, have you tried some of her meditation work? And and how would you see that compare how that meditation versus working with a meditation teacher? How is that different? Mm, good question. Um, I have done some of those practices in the past. Yes. And I think they're um, a phenomenal way to help someone get started and a nice introduction to an aspect of the practice. And I think it really depends on, you know, what is it that you want from a practice? I want a lot from my daily practice. My practice involves getting up early in the morning, doing a, a yoga routine, doing a sitting meditation routine, and then doing a writing meditation routine. So my practice is pretty structured. Um, the ways that it differs, um, you know, the the Oprah and Deepak experience are, are very guided and structured. Um, there are a million ways that you can expand that practice. And, and like I said, learn ways to apply it to your own personal struggles, learn ways to expand it into your everyday life so that you reap the full benefits of that. So, you know, I guess my practice is that I talk about death a lot (laughs) through the podcast about um, trying to bring awareness for and empower individuals to talk about their own end of life. And what I've noticed over the past year doing uh, this podcast is that meditation is having a huge impact you know, at end of life. So why do you think it is? And and will, do you feel like it's going to play, play a major role as we age in America? Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you think about what I said earlier about this habitual pattern of the mind to turn away from what we view as unpleasant, you know, most people in our culture view aging and dying as unpleasant and want to turn away from that. And one of the things I think is so phenomenal about what you're doing with this podcast is you're turning toward it. And you're encouraging other people, you're encouraging your listeners to turn toward this discussion about grief, which is huge. Our culture doesn't do that a lot. So um, I think it's absolutely important. Like, you know, if, if we're establishing a regular mindful pra- mindfulness practice that helps us to skillfully meet all of you know what the Buddhists call uh, these little deaths, these disappointments, little disappointments, big disappointments, losses throughout life, then that helps us to prepare to more skillfully meet our death. Um, and it and it does. It's so beautiful. I, I um, one of my long term students died this last year, and um, the last time I saw him was six days before his death, and his he was so grounded in his practice. He smiled and said, I'm dying, but I'm so happy, or I'm dying and I'm so happy. And he was, like he was embracing happiness even though he knew he was he was soon dying. And I can only hope to die a, a good death in the way that, that this student did. It's, it's the way that this practice can help us to live well and die well is just astounding to me. Well, isn't that one of the biggest myths that the- those who are dying are not really living and and being in hospice care you see that people who are dying are living and then you start comparing that to well aren't i dying every day uh and so it's it, it's a way to look at it in a normal aspect instead of this huge end you know explosion at the end of the road um so i try to i try to think about death every day because i think that pushes me to live more boldly um, and and take a little bit more risk in my life. And and since not working full time, it's it's opened my eyes. 
that even the simple pleasures is are extraordinary. You know, it's it's really interesting. And so I haven't I don't have a regular kind of meditation practice, but I do get up and I do have like a moment of silence and and I I read a little bit of in a meditation and then I'll then I journal. But it's it's not structured. Um and, and I want that freedom for it to be what it is instead of, you know, something that's routine. Because when you work 17 years in hospice care, it can become routine. And I'm so interested in not being a a, a regular structured thing. And that's freeing to me. But, you know, we talk about meditation and we talk about grief. And I mean, grief is so huge in the United States, even this week, talking to a few individuals that are dealing with grief I feel very, very well, but still able to show emotion and talk about some very hard situations and, and be in that moment. Um, but we we don't really recognize the signs of grief in ourselves or in others. We have this whole three-day policy um, in the United States that if someone dies, you get three days off and you can come back. And and we have this view in America that that you're not allowed to grieve um, because of these policies that, that are out there in the workplace. And so how can meditation help with grief? Yeah, I think you brought, brought up a really important point. And I think a lot of these, um, cultural customs that we have developed around grief add to people's sense of shame and feelings of separateness around grief, because there's this message that you should be over it within a a specified period of time. And, the thing that I've learned in my own life and from working with students and clients who are grieving is grief takes as long as it takes. And um, there's this intensive focus on our grief for a few days, and then the rest of the world goes back to normal. And there's this unstated expectation that we will too, but we're left with all of these overwhelming feelings about what we've lost. And um, I think that really contributes to a sense of isolation and separateness and and that can quickly turn toward shame. Um, but, you know, bringing a mindfulness practice to that and and really practicing turning toward our grief and allowing it and just saying yes to this too, you know, yes, we're going to meet this, whatever arises, we're going to meet. And if it's grief every day for however long it is, then we're going to welcome that into our soft heart. I think that, you know, that can serve as a tremendous healing tool. You know, what's interesting is that even those of us who used to work in, you know, a daily end of life service and those who are working now in home health and in the hospitals and I mean, they're dealing with a lot of death and a lot of grief, those people, those professionals. And yet we, we treat them very similar to anybody else's profession. And we, we don't have I guess what I'm trying to say is, you know, hospice organizations do not have this long, extensive grief period that they offer their employees. It's that three day. And, you know, when Shel Sandberg's husband unexpectedly died, she immediately went back to Facebook and said, okay, two month bereavement for all employees paid for. And if you still need more time, then we will extend that. Your job is safe here. And I guess you don't really know it until you go through it, how, how difficult it is because some people deal with grief, um, or hide it away for many, many years and it comes up in in different ways, but other people tend to take a long time 
and you say that with meditation, I mean, how, so someone dies and you want to start a meditation pro how, how can meditation help you? Well, I think first of all, my recommendation I want to say is if you're struggling with intense grief, find, find a teacher who's also a therapist, <laughs> find a mindfulness based therapist who can guide you, who understands the complexities of working with intense emotion, because you know, there are a lot of people out there teaching it who are new to it, who I've seen guide people to just, you know, wide open to their grief and they get overwhelmed. So find someone who can skillfully guide you in that. But I, I've learned that um, through my own experience of grief that it's, you know, what happens in our body, heart and mind in response to grief is, is very similar to what happens in, a, in chronic stress. It's almost like our bodies get stuck in this physiologically aroused state of stress and um, meditation can really serve to calm that. And, and I've seen people in, who are grieving intensely um, enter a, a regular practice, an intensive practice of mindfulness for four to six weeks, eight weeks, and really calm that overly active nervous system to the degree that then they're more able to skillfully process what happened. You know, then they can talk about it. Then they can write about it or make photographs about it. But in the beginning, when we're so overwhelmed, if we, if we go right toward trying to talk about it, often we don't have words. You know, it just feels like this internal chaos narrative that we can't make sense of. And what I learned the hard way is, you know, when I experienced an, an period of intensive grief in my mid-30s, I went to traditional talk therapy and it helped to a very limited degree and then it made me feel much worse. Mm. And that's one of the reasons why I do what I do now is, you know, what I turned toward during that period of grief was yoga, meditation, writing, photography. Those were the things that helped me to heal. Those are, the, those are still the things that helped me to heal through loss and those are the things that I teach. But there's times that you still feel that loss and you get emotional about it. And that's okay. Absolutely. Yes. That's a way it's like a release. Yes. Um, you know, I talk about grief as, as a way of, it, I, I compare it to a backpack, you know, and, and with heavy rocks. And once you experience grief or a loss of a loved one, I believe it is a myth when to find closure. And a lot of people like, want other people who are grieving to find closure and get past it. But it's something that when you experience intense grief that you wear and you never put it down, you just get stronger and you are able to handle it um, and live with it. But there's many times that we who aren't grieving, when we see other people grieving, we get really uncomfortable and we, we want to rush them or snap our fingers or we avoid them. I mean, what are some of your recommendations when you're not the person grieving, but you have someone that you love that is, um, how, how, because we always say the wrong things. I know I do. Um, it, you know, the first thing that comes to my mind that I hear people say that I cringe about is I know how you feel. Right. Yeah. That, I think the best we can do is work toward, um, developing a relationship with our own pain. And if we can develop the capacity to be present with whatever arises in us, then we have a greater capacity to be present with what arises in another person. And so often these impulses that we have to 
make the other feel better. Although we feel like we're trying to make them feel better, we're really trying to make us feel better because we can't tolerate their feelings of grief. And, <laughs> so and we can't tolerate their feelings of grief often because we can't tolerate our own. And so this work really begins with ourselves. And, you know, if once we develop that capacity, we have a widened capacity to be present with someone else. And what does a dying person want more than anything but somebody who can just sit in the room and be present with their whatever, whatever they're feeling, their, you know, their sadness, their happiness, their grief, without trying to fix it or, or shift things around or adjust the blinds or fluff the bed, you know, just, just sit. Feed them, you know, yeah, absolutely. But you know what, we, like, I didn't recognize grief signs in my own. I mean, I didn't realize all this time and working in hospice care that, that I was grieving until I started writing about it. What, what are the symptoms that are sort of maybe some flags that we can identify that, oh, that's grief. I mean, because I have no, I didn't know. So, I mean, do you have any ideas of what those flags could be that we could recognize that as a, a, a symptom of grief? Well, I think the symptom of grief that most people identify with is this sense of heartbreak. And, you know, the degree to which we have, the, the degree to which, um, let me start this thought over, Kimberly. Um, the intensity of the heartbreak most often mirrors the intensity of the loss. And so our symptoms are going to vary. You know, if we've lost an opportunity, we might feel feelings of sadness or anxiety. But if we've lost someone whom we dearly love, you know, that experience of heartbreak is going to be much more intense. Um, interestingly, because of this habitual pattern that I've talked about today with turning away from what feels unpleasant, most often the symptoms people recognize is the symptoms that they're exhibiting in their attempts to escape feeling it, right? So um, chronic busyness or um, drinking too much or eating too much or um, staying, staying really busy, uh, creating chaos in other aspects of our lives. Those might be symptoms. Other symptoms might be symptoms of over-identification with the grief so that we feel depressed and overwhelmed and all that we are is grief and um, we can't get out of bed, we're sleeping too much, we're feeling depressed, we start having thoughts of wanting to die if it gets really intense. So I see people on both of those extremes. People are diving deeply into it and getting overwhelmed by it, people who are trying to run away from it. And so the symptoms are really varied. Man, I, I think I could talk to you all day long about how mindfulness can help grief um, and us deal with our own ending in our life. Um, and I, I think what it does to me is the meditation really gets, the world is so busy and, and it's meditation has helped me create boundaries, very healthy boundaries of what I want in my life and what I don't want, um, in my life. And I think that's probably the one of, one of the best things when I can get quiet and and just come from a kind-hearted, wholehearted place that and and see other people as human beings, but also be aware that that there are certain things that I don't want in my life. And and that's one of the things that I've experienced. But you know, writing this book this past year with a lot of grief coming out, it has been a little bit more of of trying to deal with that, not compartmentalizing it, but to deal with it and allow that emotion to come out. And I don't know about you or, or whoever's listening, but sometimes that's very vulnerable. 
and and that's I felt very raw and open and exposed, even though that I, the majority of the time I was alone. Um, but it it was but it felt so good. It was like once I opened up, the space could fill again, um, and I could feel a certain way. And so I, I know this is a little bit off topic, but I also want to talk a little bit about vulnerability and mindfulness. I mean, because I feel like there, mindfulness has helped me be a little bit more vulnerable in my life. And I really do believe vulnerability is the key to connection with an authentic connection with other people. So talk to me a little bit about your experience when it comes to mindfulness and uh, vulnerability. Yeah, I, I do agree. I think they go hand in hand. And I think um, that mindfulness can really help us to more skillfully navigate those feelings of vulnerability. Because if we just go wide open without intention or without awareness of how we're being vulnerable in the world, then sometimes we feel overwhelmed, like it's too much. But if we're being intentional about our choices and how we're vulnerable, and we're using our mindful awareness to um, make decisions about that and engage, you know, how do we begin to be vulnerable in a way that's like one toe in and then grow that without overwhelming ourselves? I think that's the way that mindfulness can help us to skillfully navigate that. And also, if we've got a, a strong practice in terms of how to be with difficult emotions, when we are being vulnerable and allowing that free flow of emotions that you know, become just a part of being alive, then we know how to more skillfully relate with those emotions in a way that it doesn't have to overwhelm us. Hmm. Well, I would love to start a regular meditation practice. What would be your recommendations to, for someone like me who doesn't want routine, um, who is, is exposed to a little bit more freedom than I ever had in my life, but what are some of the first steps that you would recommend me to do on a daily basis. And hopefully some of the listeners will kind of keen into, you know, these could be beginning steps for them as well. Yeah, there's a practice that I love starting people with. And um, I have a recording of it, you can access on um, SoundCloud app, if you go to Jen Johnson and or meditate create is my ID there. But it's a meditation for awareness of body, heart and mind. And it's a four minute recording that guides you through um, starting with awareness of breathing, just noticing the rise and fall of the chest and the belly with the inhale and exhale, and then expanding that awareness to include awareness of the body and just noticing what does it feel like to be in this body in this moment so that we have this experience of just objectively observing without, oh my gosh, what's happening in my body? You know, it's just this noticing, here's what's happening in this moment in my body. And then we let go of that, turn the attention toward the heart or the emotional body. Just check in. Is there a dominant emotional state that's present in this moment? If so, what is it? Or is it relatively neutral? Does our heart feel soft and open? Does it feel guarded and closed? Again, a non-judgmental observation of just what's here in this moment. Let go of that. Turn the attention toward the state of the mind. What's the current mental state? Is the mind busy and filled with thoughts? Or is it relatively quiet and, and paying attention to the meditation instruction? And can we just meet whatever's here and allow it to be as it is without judgment? Let go of that. Return the attention to the breath. Take a deep breath in. Let it go. Um, and so it's, it's just a really lovely um, 
dip into this experience of just and that's uh, guided by you right yes okay yes. good because I was like am I going to remember all of this but no that's guided by you but what if I wanted it a little bit more intense I mean how I mean do you do stuff like this via Skype via phone I mean tell us a little bit about how I can work with you specifically sure yeah I, I offer a lot of opportunities for that actually um, I do one-on-one Skype sessions, phone sessions, and in-person sessions with people to teach people how to meditate and guide them in a, a deepening practice. And Skype is so great because it is intimate. Oh, yeah. You don't realize that how intimate it is, but doing this podcast and the majority are Skype. And I feel like I really know the people by the time we finish. So Skype is can be very intimate. And, and, you know, some people feel like it's still talking through electronics, but you're really looking at each other. Right. I love working with Skype and I have students and clients all over the world. And I love that it allows people to access that teaching in that way. Um, so I offer the one-on-one Skype sessions. I also offer a program called Calm Body, Quiet Mind and another one called Mindful Life Design. And you can find out more of these, more information about these on my website at jenjohnson.com, J-E-N-J-O-H-N-S-O-N.com. And um, people can reach you through that site too, like send yes. you an email. and Yeah, yeah. It's Jen, The email is jen at jenjohnson.com. Um, but these, these programs are a combination of um, written lessons that I send people by email and then structured coaching sessions with me by phone or Skype. And the Calm Body, Quiet Mind really gives an intensive introduction to mindfulness practice and I think is really useful for people who may say be in an intensive period of grief and wanting to just calm that overactivity of the nervous system and, and, and get to a place that they're able to process what's happening. And then mindful life design is a more extensive experience that really teaches people how do I take what I've learned in calm body, quiet mind and expand that to create a more mindful life and, and integrate it more fully into my daily life. So, I mean, you live in Wilmington, North Carolina, right down the street from me. So you do some mindfulness locally, too. So those in Wilmington, North Carolina, if they wanted to go to a meditation class run by you, how do they find you? Um, the website. I, I have an events page and post any upcoming events on that site. Um, I do teach locally an eight-week series, the Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction Series, which is another intensive opportunity for people to practice and, and learn. But you're not limited. I mean, because you'll go and do this for anyone. Businesses would be really great. You know, those working with end of life would be a great business to bring you in as a staff, staff development um, to kind of teach people. Now, I mean, clinical people, they, they don't think they need to take care of themselves, but they're the worst. Um, and so, um, you know, they, they I would really love them to learn a little bit more about meditation. So we've talked a little bit about your website. Um, you're on all social medias. You've, you're, you're a great writer. You end up on a lot of mind, body, green, um, and other things you've been published. Um, but before you go, there's something that, that has always been an intrigue, um, with me and you do this, do this workshop in January and the first of the year. And I just wanted people to know about this. And because I think if your phone is not ringing off now for this workshop, it should be come this coming January because it's about setting intentions. And I just want to talk a little bit about intentions and this workshop, because I think it's a powerful way to write down where you want to go. And by writing it down and setting your intentions, it's almost 
like you're holding yourself accountable a little bit deeper than than just writing, you know, New Year's resolutions. So talk to me a little bit about this workshop. Yeah, I, I love the idea of being intentional and living intentionally. And I think, you know, if we don't set clear intentions about how we want our lives to go, we don't really know where we're, we'll end up. And I think that's a part of what leads to dissatisfaction and, and unhappiness. And a lot of us, we're, we just kind of float along through life without being clear about where we want to go. So this workshop really is about helping people to focus and, and um, clarify what their intentions are. And I offer a talk about intentions in that workshop and the importance of, of intentions and why, why setting clear intentions is so powerful. And then I guide people through a guided meditation and a guided um, mindful writing experience. And then at the end of that workshop, I um, teach them how to create a, an intentions board, like to use text and images to put on a board that they can post. I have mine in front of my desk. I look at it every day. It's like it helps me. So you even do it. Oh, I do it every year. Yes. And I have for many years. Um, and it's it's radically changed the way I live my life. I, you know, a lot of us wait until we become ill or are dying to wake up and go, oh my gosh, how, how do I want to live the rest of my life? Don't wait, you know, start now. Any moment is an opportunity to start choosing how we live and, and, and choosing how we die. Now, do you do that workshop with businesses or would you do that workshop, bring, bring you in and staff could participate in like setting their intentions? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and I also offer it as, um, I've, I've recorded it and offer it as a, um, an audio download that people can purchase a recording of the workshop from the website. Oh, cool. Cool. So if people are interested in learning a little bit more about meditation and how that is related to grief, they can contact you and work with you, which is exciting. Um, I might be calling you. And if um, you're interested in workshops and other things, setting your attentions, they can just visit your website and reach out to you. Yes. Well, uh, I can't tell you how much I appreciate your time this morning. It's been an eye opener, like always. You, you've taught me a lot about meditation over the years. And I, I tell you, uh, I really do appreciate your presence in my life. So I'm hoping people will reach out and learn a little bit more about Jen Johnson. And you can do that at jenjohnson.com. So thanks for joining us today. Kimberly, thanks so much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for joining us today. And remember, you're the designer.